Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Friends, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode number 75. Um, and this week, we've got a really exciting guest. Uh, Alan Paul has joined us. Um, he's an author. He's a mus- musician. He's a journalist. 
Um, he's an all-around great guy who um, has agreed to join us. And really, the main reason that we we thought it was good timing is that um, you've got a new book out, huh, Alan? Yeah, well, it's, the new one is an ebook only. Okay, on, cool. uh, through it's an Amazon Kindle single. Nice, the reckoning, right? Conversations with the Grateful right. Dead. Right, reckoning conversations with the Grateful Dead. Both Jonathan and I have uh, checked it out, and um, we we recommend it to everybody. It's a quick little read on um, on the Kindle, and it was it was really fun. So yeah, it's a, a good read. I particularly enjoyed um, getting getting a hold of the full versions of some of the interviews that I've read in the past. You know, uh, right. the Phil and well, that's one of the things that motivated me to do it. Is I was frustrated having to edit some interviews that I thought were really great down more than I wanted to. So I was sort of sitting on these longer interviews, and I thought, you know, it'd be nice to get them out to people. Cool. So it wasn't it wasn't a huge commercial venture. Uh, really like my other books it was more about I, I just had this and I wanted to share it and get it out to to the people <laughs> really oh, yeah. share it with everyone I mean, it was, I it was really people, more about that than like a, a huge career move sweet I think people will really uh, be pleased with some of the gems that are uh, are in that um, I, especially in addition to the Trey Phil interview that was the first thing that jumped at me when I looked at what was in there was the the Robert Hunter interview it was uh, mm-hmm. really uh, really great and uh uh, he's he's always an interesting interview when you get to read. Right. I, I, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and those are those are actually two of the three pieces that really motivated me to put the book together was those two, and also an interview with Bill that I did last year for the Wall Street Journal, um, which which ran fairly long in the paper. But I'd spoken to him for yeah. so long that I had so much more. Uh, and, and then the the Hunter I also did for the Wall Street Journal. It ran online and it, it ran so short, and there was so much great stuff. I had to really pick and choose what went in uh, when, when it ran. And there was just so much more I wanted to get out there. And the fill and tray was something that I, I put so much effort into making happen yeah. back in, I believe it was 2000. And it ran in Guitar World. It ran in Revolver, which it, its first few issues it was very short-lived. It was a really cool magazine mm-hmm. that they were trying to sort of be mojo. Yeah. Uh, and they put out <laughs> about three or four great issues that just didn't work commercially so uh, the magazine basically folded and the title became a metal magazine so <laughs> that was where the nice. bulk of the the tray and Phil interview ran and I felt like it had sort of been forgotten and as as they were getting ready to do the dead shows last year uh, the fairly well shows with Trey I realized well gee I think you know Trey's only done one interview with any of those guys ever and mm-hmm. I did it, <laughs> and wow. it came out really well. And I mean, I, I could, you know, we could speak for an hour and a half about what went on to make that interview happen. It was insane, uh, and and so it's something I was really proud of, uh, and it just sort of gotten lost. Yeah, there's a little so bit of those tidbits in in your there. in the article too, or or the interview that you know the the I guess the prelude to it. You kind of hint at all the the troubles you had to go through to get it to happen, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, I did tell the story a little bit. I mean, it wasn't really anyone's fault per se. Just, right. You know, Phil was sort of difficult to deal with at the time. He was just getting going with his career, really, mm-hmm. again, post-Jerry with Phil and Friends. And he didn't have any of the <laughs> sort of apparatus around him that uh, people have to get things done. I mean, I spent months talking on the phone to someone who I thought was helping to set it up, and he couldn't quite make it happen. He finally broke down and said, you know, I don't, I'm just a real estate agent. <laughs> My son plays Little League with Phil, Phil's son, and he asked me to you know, handle press for him. I don't know what I'm doing. 
Uh, he's awesome. a really nice guy. Yeah. But it wasn't your normal, you know, way of setting right. up an interview. So, awesome. uh, anyhow, it was really difficult, and I finally made it happen in New York. Uh, I was out at the shoreline for for a couple of the fish shows, and because of my make uh, setting that up, I, I, I'm my attempt at making this interview happen is why Phil ended up sitting in at Shoreline. Yeah, and the first amazing. time Phil met those guys, really, well, no, it wasn't the first time, I'm sorry, because they had already done the Phil and Friends, but the first time he had met the other guys in the band and had right. any interaction with Fish was at that Shoreline show, and it was because of my interview. But the interview didn't actually happen because Phil had shown up so late. Uh, he was about two hours <laughs> late right. when he was supposed to do it. And uh, Trey then wouldn't do it because it was too close to the show. So sure. um, the interview didn't happen then, but the, but the jam, the sitting did. Yeah, <laughs> and I, mean, I got to sit and watch the show with Phil and his wife. And, um, you know, uh, I think it was about four to six months later when Phil was in New York for one of his first Phil and Friend runs at the Beacon uh, with, with Warren Haynes and Jimmy Herring and that great band he had that it happened and right. Trey promised me at the time he said sorry this didn't work out I know you came out here I promise you I will do everything I can to make it happen and you know I sort of appreciated the idea but I didn't think it would really happen it paid <laughs> so, off, though, right? uh, and it, it did so, uh, Trey lived up to his uh, pledge there and I, I really awesome. appreciated that so well I have yeah, to say that it, um, you're, you're like your efforts weren't unpaid because you got box seats at two great 99 shoreline shows right (laughs) (laughs) that's true well the first that was the second night that that had happened Um, right and the first night i i had just the greatest time you know warren sat in Mm -hmm. and uh, you know warren was already a sort of a good buddy of mine had written a lot about him nice and i was out there free and easy and i uh was staying at a friend's house in noe valley who lived right around the corner from jay blakesburg and jay drove me out so you know, Jay was like the king of Shoreline and yeah. knew his way in and out and hung out with Jay and I hung out with Warren and I saw the fish show and I, it was just great. I had the greatest time that first yeah. night. Uh, and the second night, uh, it was a little bit hard for me to enjoy. I, I was saying to myself, you know, you're sitting with Phil Lesh at the fish show, you know, enjoy <laughs> it. But I, I was, <laughs> I was a little wound up. I was wound up a little tight because yeah. I was so upset that it hadn't happened and I had gone out there and you know convinced guitar world to pay and i, I spent a lot of guitar world's right. money at that you're point just thinking of all the and, questions you wanted to ask <laughs> yeah and i was just thinking about coming back home with egg on my face you know right, i right, promise right. i i i've been talking about this great thing i made happen and i'm coming back empty-handed you mm-hmm. know um i had a great personal experience and i met phil and hung out with him and spent a lot of time hanging out with trey and fish but I don't have a story. <laughs> I'm empty-handed. Right. So it was a little hard for me to relax and totally enjoy that second night. Um, although, on reflection, I appreciate it. <laughs> it was a sure. great thing to have done and to have experienced. Sure. So um, the, those 99 shows at Shoreline, were those your fish, first fish shows? or? Oh, no, no. They weren't my first fish shows. Um, you know, uh, in getting ready to talk to you guys, I was trying to reflect on my first fish show. And... I'm not exactly sure when it was. Um, I, I'm not a big counter. Um, I can narrow it down, though. Uh, I, I'm not a big counter. Even, you know, I wrote the One Way Out, the history of the Allman Brothers, and I've seen the Allman Brothers a lot, uh, a lot more than Fish or any other band. 
but I don't know how many times. Uh, you know, definitely over a hundred. Uh, but I don't know. I, and one reason I don't know is because I, I would go to shows at the Beacon, and I would just kind of walk in the back door for nice. most of them. I didn't keep ticket stubs. I wasn't good at keeping passes. Uh, I was very into living in the moment. And overall, it's, it's been an approach to shows in life that served me well. But now, at this point in my life, I, I would welcome like a, a box full of ticket stubs sure, sure. and passes so I could... Uh, count it but no i was i was um aware of fish and and sort of into them as early as um you know sort of working at guitar world as a managing editor in 1991 um and within a couple of years by the by the early 90s i was i was totally aware of fish and then um when was the first time that they played uh medicine square garden so um, 94 was, right yeah i was gonna say it was 94 95 um, I did not go to the first the first shows, but I was aware of them, and it and it just blew me away. So the second year they played at the Garden, I I went to two of the shows, um, and, awesome. and, and that would and, be '95. So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and um, and I had also um, uh, just missed them on the Horde tours. I went to some of the Horde shows, but you know the fish wasn't on all of the Horde shows um, in the first year. Right. Uh, so I was at shows that they weren't on, so I had missed them, but everybody was talking about them, and I, I was certainly aware of them. And um, I was excited about Fish uh, initially. I didn't love their music as much as some of the other bands, mostly because I'm, I, I approach the music from a, like a blues perspective. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of Albert King and B.B. King and a lot of jazz, a lot of Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis, and John Coltrane. And to me, Fish is coming from more of the prog rock side um, and, and less of the roots music. So it, the music I didn't immediately love. I, I liked it and I was excited about it because I recognized Trey as a great guitar player. And as somebody who was at Guitar World, you know, wanting my music to be relevant, the success of Fish was just fantastic for me because it, it made a whole class of music that I loved and was interested in relevant. Um, so when they started playing The Garden, I made a big deal about it to everyone at the magazine. Um, because I had been <laughs> jumping up and down. I had already, I hadn't written the first few stories in Guitar World on Fish, but I made them happen. I signed them to other people. And I kept saying, I told you guys, I told you guys, look, they're playing the garden. <laughs> That's awesome. um, and it was really, you know, at that point I, I got their attention. So um, the first story I did on Fish was actually after Clifford Ball. So I went up there. Um, I had seen at least a couple of shows, uh, but I still wasn't completely prepared for Clifford Ball, <laughs> what was nice. going on up there. Yeah. It was, I don't think that anybody was quite prepared <laughs> That's true. up there. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I, I moved out there for a couple of years. I came back um, for a little bit in the summer and to go up there. And when I was making my plan, <laughs> I didn't realize really where Plattsburgh was. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll fly into Newark and rent a car and go up to this right. thing. And... I was sort of naive about how far it was. I just kept driving and driving and driving. And as I was getting closer, you know, I was driving for hours, and the highway just started to become full of, you know, these fish freaks. And yeah. it was amazing. It, it, and, and as much as amazing as the actual festival was, 
going in and out of the festival <laughs> was just as amazing because nice. as you got closer, you know, the rest areas were just filled with fans and yeah. the highways and the side of the road and people were just everywhere. Um, it, it, it was incredible. Just it was, a bunch it was, of patchwork pants and like, you know, uh, everywhere you could see, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, my, <laughs> yeah, my wife was with me. Um, you know, we, we, we sort of made it a, a vacation and we went up there and it was it was cool. It was a great experience. Um, you know, I don't I I can't remember any particular set or song that that's it was the whole thing. It was the whole experience. It was just leaving and thinking, my God, you know, these guys are, you know, they they they're just giant and they've got something really special going on. And you know, the energy, the the connection with the fans, the the whole thing left such a such a big impression on me i think your um that interview with phil and trey kind of points to that too that specific topic of both the dead and fish really touching their fans emotionally and you know um them knowing that they need to connect and that's kind right. of what sets them apart even though the music's totally different right and the thing that that's so interesting about that interview in retrospect um, when you know what, if you, you read it now, knowing what was about to happen to Trey and to Fish, mm-hmm. um, it's it's fascinating because he was so interested in picking Phil's brain about <laughs> how do we avoid this becoming a disaster? Right. <laughs> you know, right. how do we avoid crashing? How uh, you know? I want and I want to have a hit single. He said, you know, he he right. said that very directly. Yeah. Um, which you, you know, I've Does always admired. Tell, doesn't he also tell the uh, Graham Nash story in that interview? Yes, you know, he does. Don't screw he, it he, up. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he didn't tell it in quite as much detail as he as he has recently. But yeah, he he does. And it was funny because Phil just said, "Sounds like something Nash would say." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of thought it was uh, great, also. Cool. But um, I just you know I interviewed Trey just a few months ago this fall before when the uh, Tab album came out and. Um, you know, talked to him about that interview, and he didn't remember any of the details of it. I mean, of course, yeah. he remembered that it had happened, but he didn't know what we had talked about. And mm. I was relating some of this to him, and he was he was fascinated. You know, he said, "Oh, could you please send it to me?" <laughs> he he was fascinated to to look inside his mind. Yeah. Um, and 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 you know, once Trey crashed and and it became apparent how bad his drug problem was honestly i i felt uh, i felt really naive because i hadn't i had not picked up on it i didn't yeah. I, it it kind of completely gobsmacked me when that all went down um and i and i had spent a fair amount of time with trey uh, d- during the you know crucial period that we're talking about and you know, it made me reflect on my own hmm. <laughs> per ability and perception because I had completely missed uh, that that altogether. So, um, you know, he, like most folks in that situation, probably missed it too mm-hmm. for quite a while. Right. So. That's right. And he's, you know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Trey as as an interviewer, as someone to talk to, is he he is really honest and analytical about whatever's going on and he wants to think about it and he wants feedback. I mean, he'll always say, what do you think about this track? What do you think about that track? And and he really listens. Um, 
So, and, and I think he always enjoyed doing interviews with me and with um, Guitar World in general because we were really focused on music and, and guitars and gear, and he loves talking about that stuff. Um, so that was, you know, more what we were talking about anyhow. Um, we weren't really, you know, going deep into his, his personal life or right. whatever. Right. Um, but... You know, he he's always been a great interview, someone I've looked forward to speaking with. And he's got a lot of energy. The first time we, he's got a lot of energy. Yeah. He has an amazing <laughs> amount of energy. Might be that red hair. I, 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 I was laughing about it um, when I transcribed this last interview because he talks so fast. You know, he yeah. it is like it's harder <laughs> to transcribe right, <laughs> because right. it's like twice as many words per minute as uh, other interviews. Awesome. Um, but it's making it's, you do your work. Inc- yeah, it's incredible. His energy is uh, impressive. It's what drives this whole machine, I think. And um, I was impressed because because before this prior interview, I really hadn't interviewed Trey in I think about close to ten years or more. Um, and I was thinking, you know, boy, Trey has gone through a lot since the last time we we did an interview. He's acknowledge this problem he's cleaned up he's way past that he's on a broadway show he's uh, gotten back together with fish fish has become as bigger bigger than ever really um he's done the whole grateful dead thing he has uh, established a trade of stadium and he's done all these things and i just wondered how would that affect him as a person would he be less um What's the word? Idealistic. You know, he always had this incredible idealism about music and the power of music. And what I found was uh, not at all. <laughs> changed a bit. He's the same as ever. He, in some ways, he's more full of wonder and passion and optimism about the power of music. That's awesome. Um, and it's something I've, you know, really always admired about him. And although in a lot of ways their personalities are very different. I think it's something he sort of shares with, with Warren Haynes. Um, it's like he's another person who I can just spend hours <laughs> talking about music and guitars and favorite albums and great performances and people he loves to jam with. Um, because these guys are just so fired up by that and motivated yeah. by that. Before yeah, before Jonathan that. asks the next question, I want to kind of point <laughs> out that we've we've um, kind of talked about this on the podcast and, and like, Trey's career arc in that like in those early years when you were at Guitar World early 90s he was really like the driving force and he would just shred every night like machine gun Trey but now you know if you listen to these 3.0 shows it's such more uh, such the band just so much more democratic it's collective he he steps back way more often he did even in 2.0 but um, it's funny that you know it's age, probably it's sobriety, it's all that stuff that um, it kind of lends to exactly what you're talking about. So it's great to hear from you. Yeah, and I think um, I don't know if you would express it exactly like this, but it's like you know, there's nothing to prove. There's no yeah. sense of yeah. it, it's so established, um, and and it seems that the relationship between uh, the four guys and Fish. From, and I think it's apparent in the music from the shows I've seen and, and, and listened to. And certainly the way Trey talks about it, it's just so much deeper. 
Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we were talking before we were on the air, each of us have have kids, you know, and, mm-hmm. and as you, as you, the thing about having children and raising children, and, and I've talked about this with Trey also, who has, you know, two daughters who are in college now, and it's part of the growing up process. I mean, you, you start off this thing and you're, and, and, and Trey was talking about that, you know, you start off and you're single and then you, you get married and then you have kids and you have little kids, you have big kids. And so those guys are all at the point now where they've grown up with each other. They've raised children and, and you know if you're doing it halfway right at all the experience of of raising kids you know you learn a lot about yourself um and when you have close friendships with people and you both are all raising kids and you're all going through marriages and divorces although i don't think that those guys have been divorced but <laughs> you know the ups and downs and ins and outs of, of marriages and relationships it's just a it's a period of growth and, and growing up and becoming an adult. So, um, and of course, once you get addiction and substance abuse out of the picture, um, that changes everything as well. It it kind of allowed Trey to, I don't know, start over is not quite the right word, but kind of reground himself and kind of relaunch himself and 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 get back to who he was. So he's. Um, I think so. I mean, that's how he talks about it, and and um, I believe it because I think it shows in the music and in the performances, as you were saying. I think that it, you know, sometimes people can say whatever they want, but you you know, you have your own eyes and ears, and sometimes it doesn't match up with what you're seeing or hearing. But in his case, I think it absolutely does. Yeah, it does. So, you know, you mentioned um, Warren Haynes in uh, you know in comparison to Trey in the uh, the demeanor and attitude. And I've often heard that uh, Warren is, um, I haven't had the pleasure, but it's one of the nicer fellows you can meet in rock and roll. Um, and that kind of draws me back to a question I, I had in our notes. Um, uh, you know, you've, in addition to this new book and, you know, your work with Guitar World, you've actually written what many consider to be the book on the Allman Brothers Band. Um, and I wanted to know where you got started with the Almonds. I mean, it, were you a longtime fan? Was it something you picked up professionally? Well, and went down? born on the backseat of a Greyhound bus. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I came to the, I came to it as a fan. I mean, they were they were the yeah. first bands when I was a kid that completely, you know, uh, captivated me. My I have an older brother, luckily, who turned me on to them and turned me on to the Grateful Dead. Um, there's something about the Allman Brothers music just had this incredible resonance to me. Um, and, uh, I, I wrote when they had just gotten back together in 1989 and then, uh, seven turns came out in 1990. So it was Warren's first record Warren with them and their first, Woody. yeah, their, their, their comeback. Um, I wrote a big story about that for Tower Pulse magazine and it was to that point by definitely the best thing I had ever written. And it sort of led me to get hired at Guitar World. So um, I, came, I, I started working at Guitar World. I was moved to New York. Uh, it was a great time to be there for a lot of reasons. I saw so much great music and was going to wetlands all the time. And the Allman Brothers were coming to the Beacon within a year or two. You know, They were there for a month. Um, and I got to know Warren really well because I had, you know, did some stories on him and He's just a few years older than me. You know, we were sort of the same generation. Uh, and we were both in New York, sort of feeling our oats. We'd see each other out and about all the time. So uh, and then I became good friends with uh, Kirk West, who was the band's road manager and archivist. 
and once that happened, I just sort of being around all the time. Um, so I was able to get backstage and have this sort of great inside access between my friendship with Warren and Woody and my friendship with Kirk. Um, and so I just did tons and tons of articles. So eventually time went by and I'd been around for 20 years <laughs> doing articles and having these guys see me and have relationships with everyone, with a bunch of the crew members. Um, and I was a little slow on the uptake. I finally said, you know, I think I should write a book. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, you'd have to be a, a, a little nuts to spend 20 years writing a book or setting out to do that. Right. Um, and, and I didn't exactly do that. But in the end, I did. But on the other hand, if you, if you don't put in the 20 years, guys like that are never going to trust you or talk to you. Right, it's like 20 so, years of notes, basically, right? Yeah, 20 years of notes and credibility so that when nice. I started doing more interviews, they were ready to talk to me. It seems so, like you got the payoff. Oh, uh, go ahead, were sorry. you? I'm sorry, Brad. Were, were you uh, subsequently a government mule fan as well? Yes, I was around, I was around <laughs> the government mule at the very beginning. Um, right, likewise. And it's funny because when, when their first record came out, um, I dragged before it came out and they were playing like a big, you know, big, uh, um, uh, geez, what's the word? Um, I'm just totally blinking, you know, like a, 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 a spotlight show, you know, when, when the label puts right. everyone, gets everyone to come. Yeah. The showcase or whatever. Show, they showcase. Thank yeah. you. They had a big showcase at wetlands and I dragged the whole guitar world office down because I was so excited. I mean, I had the art department there and I had all the editors and copy editors. And, <laughs> and they were so loud. Yeah. They were so loud. They were playing at like arena volumes at Wetlands. <laughs> and most of the people like, you know, and, you know, these are guys who went to heavy metal shows and Van Halen and everything else. And they kind of put their hands over their ears and ran out. <laughs> the door. Yeah, the first, so, first time I saw Mule, and that was just a little after that, but yeah. um, it was one of the loudest shows I had ever seen at that point, and for a yeah, while. And it was crazy, and and Woody was so loud. And, I, you know, yeah. for those of you who ever went to Wetlands, you could picture this, anyone listening. And if you didn't, Wetlands, you know, as awesome as Wetlands was, and as much great music as I saw there, which was a lot, um, the, the setup was so strange. The stage was was facing the wrong direction, so it was, it you know, was weird. We walked in at that little space. It was on the right, so whoever was on stage left was sort of dominating the room. And, and Alan Woody was on that side of the stage with his. So when you walked into Wetlands, all you could hear was the bass. It was the most loudest, rumblingest bass. <laughs> um, Good news is when Alan Woody's playing the bass, there's nothing wrong with just hearing Alan Woody. <laughs> yeah, well, it was God good for me, but a lot of other people, uh, right? You know, couldn't deal with it. So, um, awesome. so w when that first record came out, we did a fairly small story, and uh, Woody and Warren were—they were kind of mad at me, honestly, because because you know they were very excited about this record coming out, and they wanted the same treatment that we gave the Allman Brothers, you know, when a right. record came out, and. Um, before the next one came out, by then I had moved to Ann Arbor, moved there for a couple of years, and they came and played, and I spent a whole day hanging out on the tour bus with, with Warren and Woody, and they, their second album was getting ready to come out, and they were kind of 
saying, how can we get more of a story? And they were telling me about how James Hetfield had recently come to a show mm. out in California and how much he liked them, for, you know, James from Metallica. Sure. So I said to Warren, you know, man, if we could get Hetfield involved in a story, I could get, you know, we could really blow this up. I bet you maybe he would be interested in, like, interviewing you and I could moderate it. So, like, the next day I wrote a letter to Hetfield's manager and he was saying, I got a phone call <laughs> really quickly that James wanted to do it. And so uh, we did it and I managed to get them on the cover. Um, and, and I just was looking at that story. That's another one that's sort of been lost. And I'm going to put that up on my blog, alanpaul.net. So, <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's James Hetfield interviewing Alan Woody and Warren Haynes uh, with me steering the conversation a little bit. And we did that with uh, Danny Clinch, did all the photos. So that was, you know, another another great highlight in my career a few years before the, the Trey and Phil thing. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we used to really enjoy doing that at Guitar World where we would have someone interview someone else they love. In fact, um, maybe three or four years before that, we had had James Hetfield interview Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath, and I moderated mm, nice. that one. Well, there's yeah, nothing more than, like, there's, there's no greater expert than, you know, a, a fellow musician who's similar in style or, you know, genre, I guess. But Yeah, and Hetfield, just, he loved Warren and Woody, loved them. And he, you know, he came there, he'd pull out a piece of paper and he had, like, you know, tons of questions written out in very wow. neat block handwriting. Um, <laughs> Black man, of course, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, nice. you know, it, it was cool. That was another another great highlight of my career awesome so um thanks again alan just for for coming on i think we're we're going to throw it to the music at this point and we'll be back after that but um you mentioned your your blog alanpaul.net um you can also find alan at on twitter at al paul and then you've also has the, the facebook page alan paul author right Right. Okay. Yeah, and we have, uh, you know, and I, I, all this stuff that I post on the blog, I put up on the Facebook, and um, you know, we developed a really nice uh, group of music fans up there. We have lots of dialogue and conversation, so you awesome. come by and visit. You know, don't just look, jump in. It's an <laughs> interactive community. Cool. So, also, if you if you haven't. If the listeners haven't realized that we're in over our skis just from the people you've interviewed, um, they can also see all your other <laughs> stuff on alanpaul.net. So um, yeah. check it out there. Well, also. no, there's nobody's in over their skis. It's all it's all beautiful. Thing. Yeah. That, that, that's the beauty of today's world. I mean, you're a fan. You know, yep. it's, you know it's, it's a beautiful thing. You have a podcast. You have a website. And, um, you know, if you have and something Twitter to say, account, so we're official, people you know? will find it. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So... Um, as always, check us out at HFPod, um, helpingfriendlypodcast at gmail.com is where you can um, drop us your love notes. And um, we have a Facebook page, but it, it's definitely not as popular as Alan. So won't, I don't even know what it is. Well, we can link it up. We'll, yeah. we'll send our friends to each to one another. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. <laughs> we'll Thanks. That. So let's dive into the music. We're going to break it down into two parts uh, just so the episodes aren't huge. Um, these are all shows and songs and jams um that alan picked and uh after we listen to them we will be back and, and chat about them all right enjoy the music
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
that was The Thrill is Gone with B.B. King from uh, 22403 at East Rutherford, Continental Arena, IZOT Center, Meadowlands, whatever it was called right then. <laughs> and it was Misty Mountain Hop from 91699, Shoreline Amphitheater with Warren Haynes guesting, uh, You Enjoy Myself and Jam following that with Phil Lesh from Shoreline, also the next night, 91799. And then uh, last thing we listened to was Reba from 81796, the Clifford Ball. That's awesome. So, I mean, you've got, from the previous discussion, Alan, before the music, I mean, these are all songs that are near and dear to you because you were at Shoreline, you are at the Clifford right. Bar. Right, I was at all right? of those shows. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, and the BBK. Yeah, the thrill is yeah. gone. I, 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 you know, I was working on another story with Trey in uh, 2003, and uh, they played in East Rutherford, which is fairly close to my house in New Jersey. So I went. Um, total coincidence that BB King was there. Um, happy coincidence. I, I, I know that not everybody loves that, and and I could totally understand why. <laughs> um, it was the first time that that I saw BB King do what he started to do throughout the end rest of his career, which was sometimes just talk and talk and talk <laughs> and like not leave the stage and I think all the guys in Fish were getting a little uncomfortable <laughs> because nobody's going to tell B.B. King hey right. you gotta go you know right. so he could do whatever he wanted but um, it was really exciting when he first came out on stage it was like a giant jolt of excitement um, and I didn't listen to it for a long time and I have listened to it a bunch recently and I think it's really good. I think Mike uh, really held up. I think it's really, really easy for, you know, Fish is not a blues band, um, and and everybody thinks they can play blues, but I've heard a (laughs) lot of people mess it up, and I think they did a really, really nice job. So I think they can be proud of that. Uh, You know, I am a big blues fan. I love D.B. King. you know, I, I never actually, I, I'm sure I did at the time. I don't remember the story of how that all happened, um, but, it, but it was cool. It was memorable. And it, was, it was a special I th- thing. I was really happy I was there. I think this came together because uh, not long before or right around this, Trey took part in the filming of some movie. It was a uh, like all access, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And there was That's a right. segment absolutely with right. Trey, BB uh, yep, King, it, the Roots. Um, that's and right. And this Pete, was Peter right Shapiro uh, produced that, <laughs> actually. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's all coming um, back. You're absolutely right. So, um, you know, I think that part of the reason people don't, some fans don't give this a chance is the same reason they don't give a lot of the sit-ins, that, of which there aren't many, really, with fish uh, a chance, because they're just kind of um, selfish about their fish. They want fish to be fish, mm-hmm. and, you know, 20 minutes of the thrill is gone, which, taken right here we can listen to it and say it was freaking great but yeah. that's that could have been a that could have been a ym man right and i appreciate that yeah. you know and and you know as, as a almond brothers aficionado i often felt that way at the beacon theaters with all the, the sit-ins um right people would get so excited and sometimes they were fantastic i mean i saw some incredible stuff there and sometimes they would just sort of bring them down, you know. You're like, right. Well, they're better without this this guy. So, well, I, I, I get that. I tell you that this was, uh, I think, a middle the middle of an epic run from 2.0. This February 2003. Number one, they didn't tour in February very often, but number two, this was after the first hiatus, um, and just the four or 
yeah, four nights later, right? The the um, Uniondale show was is right. like released by Fi- Live Fish, just an epic show. I was at the show two nights previous in Cincinnati, and that was just an amazing show. Um, so this is a really great run, and I think this adds to it. I mean, it's it's it shows that they can be patient. It shows that um, they can they can go the blues route, like you were mentioning. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a big it's a big step away from the prog that you were mentioning, you know, right. earlier. So it's a healthy education for them. There you nothing go. else. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I saw them five nights later uh, down in uh, was Greensboro, and mm-hmm. that turned out all right too. So yeah. yeah, they were they were on a good run. They were. So the next the next song also a cover. Um, which you know, Fish fans, Alan like to say they're the best cover band around. Um, is is Misty Mountain Hot from the first night of the '99 Shoreline shows with Warren Haynes? Um, you know, Warren, as as Jonathan mentioned in, in his notes, is is known for his sit-ins. He's got plenty of them with plenty of different bands, but this one really stands out. I thought the whole band sounded really great. Right. Um, yeah, and as, as we talked about earlier, I mean, this was like an epic, epic night for me, and that was the encore. Um, I was out there. I was just totally loving life. I was seeing fish at Shoreline. Warren was there. I was hanging out with him. I was, you know, it was a beautiful night, and that was the encore. So it was the, it was the end. It was the capper of a great night. So I'm not saying it was the best song of the night, mm-hmm. um, but it was, it, it was exciting for me to see Warren with them, which I had never done. Um, it's always kind of fun to hear people play Led Zeppelin. And, you know, again, it was the last night, uh, last song of just a great, great night. So, Did, did he know um, he was going to do it? I mean, was this planned, or did they rehearse? Or? Um, to the best of my memory, no. They did not rehearse. They talked about it um, you know, right before they went in. Wow. And, and, and uh, they were running in and printing out lyrics in the, in the production trailer. Um, <laughs> that sounds like... I want to say, you know, I believe in the book, I, I should have looked this up, but I think Warren was out there for doing some of these early Phil and Friends shows. Um, and had talked to Trey and was talked about coming. They may have talked about the possibility of doing it, uh, I don't think Warren was sure he was going to make it because they were rehearsing that night, uh, to the best of my memory. And he showed up, and you know, he he was he wasn't there all night, but he had been there for at least a little bit for you know a few songs, um, and and so it, it may have been discussed in advance. It wasn't rehearsed. If it was, it was rehearsed really quickly, like in the trailer, mm-hmm. um, right before they played it. We'll great. have to go back and look at the uh, fishnet reviews and see people see if people complain about a long break before the encore. Or something. <laughs> it could be, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, it's a terrific version. Warren plays really well, and uh, Paige deserves credit for doing a, a good job on the vocals. It's, mm-hmm. You know, he, he yeah, generally and handles the Robert Plant part for Fish when they do Zeppelin, and, and did a good did a good job on this one. And they did another great cover. I, I got to look at the set list. I'm not 100% sure if it was that the 16th or the next night, the 17th. Um, but they did uh, On Your Way Down, which is a song I always loved. I loved the Alan Toussaint version and the Little Feet version. And it was the first time I'd heard Fish sing it. And, uh, um, of course, Paige sang that as well. And that, that was another highlight that I, I could have easily picked, but I wanted to get this Warren song in there. Uh, I think you great. picked a good one. So. Uh, and then... The next night, also the next track on our uh, on our playlist was the uh, YEM "You Enjoy Myself" into the jam with Phil Lesh, and um, you know, "You Enjoy Myself" is good. I mean, 
average, great, you know, excellent. You, you enjoy myself, but really the 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 gem here is is the jam with dueling basses, which you know um, some people like a previous incident of dueling basses um, with fish when uh, Jim Skinnett sit in sat in. Um, I don't enjoy that one at all. This one, yeah. it's gorgeous. And Mike and Phil did this again uh, at a Phil show, I think. Um, it, in a, within the next few years, you know, Mike sat in with Phil once or twice and uh, yeah. reproduced this sort of thing. And it's just and it was it was great, and it was a very exciting moment when Phil walked out on the stage with them. Um, I mean, you know, it's you you go to shows and you, you you take it in, and ultimately it's all about the music, but it's also all about the the energy and the sure. moments and. There are times, I mean, um, as much as, you know, I, I have in the past I criticized Eric Clapton and been a little skeptical of him, but I was in the Beacon Theater two nights and he came out and played with the Allman Brothers. It was incredible. Uh, when he set foot on the stage, I mean, it blew any skepticism out of the water, and there was an energy before he came out and after he came out that was palpable. and. It was sort of like that with, with Phil and Fish. I mean, it, it, as much as everything that happened was great, the, the moment when he walked out on stage and people realized uh, Phil Lesh playing with, with Fish, I mean, it was it was incredible. And he, he jumped on the trampoline and people just went crazy. Um, it, and, and also, Phil wasn't nearly as ubiquitous as he has been in subsequent years. You know, he was just starting to come out and play publicly. He had really been laying low. Right. Um, we were, we mean, were still he, very much relishing every mm-hmm. glimpse of him at that time. Right. I mean, certainly, it's not like nobody had seen him. I mean, he'd been playing, and um, but but it, he had not been around nearly as much. Obviously, Terrapin Crossroads was way far away from existing, and um, it, was, it was really special, and having him walk out with Fish was really special, and you know, if he had waved and played three notes and walked off, it still would have been kind of cool. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if it had been a train wreck, it still would have been kind of cool because <laughs> it would have been Phil playing with fish. And the fact that it was none of those things and that the music was great, um, you know, it was it was, uh, it was transcendent. It was really, really special. So, um, you know, I remember the feeling and the, and the energy as much or more than I remember the sound it was just it was a great night great great thing to be there for two of the things i, I took away from from the re-listen was again this is you enjoy myself this isn't like um an easy song that that you can just pick up um you know by listening to the the progression um and phil sat in on that one and then secondly that bass jam was only like four minutes which is it's it it was nice they didn't try to drag it out they didn't they realized what they were doing um, and it, I, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but it sounded a little Mike. I don't know if it was Mike or Phil, honestly, but one of them sounded a little bit like when Mike played with Leo Kotke. I don't know if you've listened to those, right. those albums. It, it's just that nice, refreshing, uh, bass. Yeah, I think that I'm pretty sure that was Mike. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he just naturally took to a slightly different style so mm-hmm. that he wasn't banging heads with Phil. Right. Um, you know, I think Mike is a very intuitive musician with great ears and and that probably presented right. itself as the thing to do um now i can assure you that there was not a lot of rehearsal on this i know for yeah. a fact there wasn't because as we were talking about before i mean phil was very late getting there i was anxiously pacing around and, and this was 
pre-cell phone, by the way. So sure. um, we couldn't get a hold of Phil. You know, the only thing we, we got was, because uh, Fish had sent the limousine to pick Phil and Jill up at their house. And, and, and the manager was calling the, the limousine company, and we got confirmation that they had been picked up <laughs> and, and what time they had been picked up. So we were, we were anxiously waiting. But he got there less than an hour, about an hour, before they went on stage and said hi to Phil, uh, to, to Trey. And we did a very quick photo shoot with Jay Blakesburg, and then Trey went back on his bus, and they did not talk. And then I sat for the first uh, half of the show with Phil and Jill, so uh, mm. then they did go backstage. I'm sure they rehearsed a little bit during the break. Sure. But um, it, there wasn't extensive rehearsal. I assume that they had sent him a, you know, a tape or something. But yeah. uh, who knows how much Phil listened to it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that, was, that was a special night. Epic, epic story. It was awesome. I love it. So um, then the last of the four tunes uh, for this part we listened to was, was the reboot from Clif- Clifford Ball. And um, I think Jonathan has some feelings about it. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you know, I was listening to that today again, and I've, I've listened to this Reba so many times. Mm-hmm. And really, I just, it's a definitive version, I think. It's, this is, they've done other versions that were different and other versions that were similar. And, there's the album version and whatever but this version is everything Reba needs to be and more and it's just gorgeous mm. and I wish yeah. and, I, and I don't know if you know offhand I don't think this was really late at night was it? You know I offhand? don't recall where wasn't that set anymore yeah I'm, I'm not sure. I, it's late first set maybe maybe not I don't know yeah I'm it, it doesn't really matter but, but mm-hmm. uh, you know just going back to I was at Clifford Ball and I was just I was blown away by the whole thing. Um, and I, you know, I wandered all around. I had some backstage access. I went back. I sort of said hi to Trey. And then I just went out. I was with my wife. And we just wandered around. And we eventually just sat down on sort of a, a hillside. It was like a little berm towards the back uh, right. And we just we just sat down and, and listened to the music and, and sort of laid down on our backs and looked at the sky and listened to music. And, uh, it was great. You know, I, I had been to a lot of shows and often been sort of working and running around. And it's one of the first times that I felt like I just let all that go and just, you know, just got lost in the music. And um, this was one of the songs. I don't remember exactly which set it was. Um, but it was I the, just, Yeah, it was the first set know, for the second day. And, and right. it was only three songs. And so completely wrong part of the set but i mean yeah three songs into the first set the sun's still up for sure probably uh, yeah i just mm-hmm. i just let the music sweep me away and it mm-hmm. just it was a you know it was a great moment for me as well it, it's a song that can do it that that after the you know i guess the progish composed part um that blissful peak that they get to is just i mean that's what it's what we fish for, man. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. I mean, for the first part, those are the four songs. Awesome that you saw all three of them, or all four of them. Um, yeah, yeah, Alan and and again, we appreciate it. Um, Alan's info is at Alan Paul on Twitter and Alan Paul author on Facebook. AlanPaul.net. It's Al Paul. Yeah. Al Paul. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this is making me want to run out to a fish show. By the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're coming up this summer. Um, uh, get you, you know, get your tickets now. Um, 
<laughs> I'm gonna have to see him at Lock-in. I have to wait till you know almost the end of summer to see him myself. Okay. But uh, but, but um, they'll be out west for me, so I'll I'll see him on the on the west coast, um, which is great. They're making their uh, cross country journey this summer, which is great. Yeah, and they're playing what three nights? I think it's back, which is always mm-hmm. you know great place to see them. Highly recommend it. Really- yeah, I think I'm going to be out west when they come there last, but um, but I'll figure something out. I'll definitely see them somewhere. Awesome, that's great. Um, so again, right. yeah, thanks for thanks for taking the time. Let's we'll get to part two um, next week and uh, more Alan Paul picks then. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, talk to you soon. Okay, pleasure. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.